Good morning, New Life. That was awesome. Great to be with you this morning. It's my absolute privilege to unfold the scriptures, to ask questions of it, and to hopefully come out the other side feeling more equipped for work and more ready for our Mondays. My wife and I, we celebrated our uh, fourth anniversary on Thursday. 9th of September 2017 is when we got married. And on our anniversary, we had some time off. And to inhabit this time off, one of the things that I love doing and I loved doing is reading a novel. I don't know about you, but when you've got time off, you know, some people use their time off to catch up on things. I do not. I step back from the demands of life and I inhabit a novel. And so I read a book by a writer that I've always wanted to read, but I've just never had time to. The book is called The Stranger by Albert Camus. He's a journalist from the 20th century. He's also a novelist. And he's written a whole host of works that are way too dense, but I grabbed this one off the shelf because it was 100 pages long and I knew that I'd maybe be able to get through it in two days. Sat on the beach with my wife, read through Albert Camus' The Stranger, and absolutely loved it. I don't know if you're joining us online right now, whether you're a novel liker or whether you've read this book, but can I encourage you? It's a wonderful meditation. The premise of the book centers around a French man from Algiers, and his name's Mersault. Mersault, or as I like to say in Australian, Mersault, he, he's an apathetic and disinterested guy, and he buys the lie that life has no meaning. He buys the lie that life has no meaning. His mother dies in the story, and he doesn't care. He kills someone, and he doesn't care. He gets a girlfriend in this story, and he doesn't care. And he's even sentenced to death in a French prison, and he doesn't care. For Camus, the writer, as an atheist, the whole book is a meditation on the question of the meaning of life. And Camus' answer to that question is, life has no meaning. And so what we should do is just drift through life in an apathetic and disinterested and disengaged way. Why? Who cares? The key phrase that the book repeats through and through is, Mersault had no reason not to do and then it would describe his actions. Do you have a reason to do things in this life? The question that the book raises, and I was so glad it did, I was like, how do I illustrate and open up this sermon on Sunday? Luckily, this book had an answer for me. The question it raises is this, why does what I do in life matter? Do you have an answer to that question? Why does what you do in this life matter? Today, I get to finish off the series, Rework, how God restores, redeems, and renews our work. And in this series, we've been exploring the question, how does the Christian story inform my work? And how does it transform the way I do my work? In the first week, we unpacked the idea that work is good, but it's broken. Because it's good, we should pursue excellence. We've got every reason to. But because it's broken, we shouldn't see work as the primary place from which I get my identity. We, we know better than that as Christians. Work is good, but it's broken. We, we should pursue excellence and do it well and enjoy it, but we shouldn't see it as, the, as an end in itself. We've got a bigger calling as Christians that informs and permeates the work that we do. In the second week or third week, I think it was, we unpacked the idea of Sabbath, that the Christian story doesn't just have a good framework for how we do our work. It actually has a good rhythm of life that we invest our mind, soul, and body into. So when we go to work, we go to work rested. When we finish work, we have the satisfaction of knowing that we've got a job well done. The Christian story has a plethora of things to say, not just for our religious Sundays, but for our busy Mondays, our full lives, and our work week. 
You don't need to be employed full-time for the Christian story to speak to your vocation. And we've been unpacking that. Today I get to answer this question. Why does what I do matters? Not from the creation story, not from the question of Sabbath, not from any other place, but, but from the end of the Christian story. Today I want to ask the question, how does the hope that Christians have inform and transform our work? And to do that, two points. I love, I love a few, I love a little header at the start. Two points. One, what the Christian hope is. And two, what the Christian hope changes. What the Christian hope is and what it changes. So as we kick off, I'd just love to invite you, join with me in prayer, and we'll ask that God might speak to us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you are always speaking. We pray right now, Father, that you would give us solitude and pause enough to listen. Give us open ears, an attentive mind, and a ready will to put into action the things that you speak to us this morning. Jesus, we love you. You're our King. You're our Lord. You're our Savior. And this morning, Father, we meditate in the hope that we have, and we ask that you would change the way we live our lives because of what you've done and what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. So what the hope is? What the hope is? And if I were to ask you, what is the hope that Christians have? You could be a Christian in the room, you could be a non-Christian, you could be an atheist, you could be a Buddhist, whatever your background. If I was to ask you, what is the hope that Christians have? There'd be a plethora of responses. Different people would say different things. But one idea that's captured the imagination of people in the West goes something like this. That the hope that Christians have is that this material world is bad, that it's going to be destroyed one day. One day God will come and he'll take Christians away from this world and he'll put them in this other place, the good place, heaven. And heaven's this nice celestial spiritual city and there's clouds and we'll get to play the harp forever and worship God and it'll, it'll go on for eternity. And, and that's the story that earth is bad, spiritual world's good, God's going to take us away and we'll spend eternity with him in quote unquote heaven. Now there's two problems with this. One, it, it, it's true language, but the imagery that comes to mind is false. Two problems with this. One, it just sounds like a really terrible and boring way to spend eternity. I don't know about you, but the idea of playing a harp on a cloud in a celestial city just sounds strange. Two, it's not the picture that the Bible gives us. This picture, it actually comes from a Greek philosopher named Plato. Now, I don't often reference two philosophers in every sermon that I give, but today it's a sweet spot. I'm sorry. Plato, 4th century BC, Greek philosopher. And his work has informed a lot of the way that we think today, regardless of whether he's read his work or no, he had this idea that ultimate reality, you know, if I was to ask you the question, what is, what is this world ultimately? For Plato, ultimate reality is the, the spiritual world. It's this far off, distant, spiritual world. And he thought that the material world was something lesser, something inferior, something worse than the spiritual world. He famously called the body the prison of the soul. For those who came after Plato... They saw the material world as inferior to the spiritual world. For Plato, the material world, get this, it's something that should be abandoned. And the material world is something that souls are destined to escape. That's Plato's worldview. Later, Christians adopted Plato's worldview, but they packaged it in biblical language. 
They adopted Plato's worldview, but they packaged it in biblical language. And because of this, so many people, let me boil it down, so many people think that heaven is this good spiritual place and that earth is this bad material place. And if you want me to prove it, think of the TV show The Simpsons. In The Simpsons, this is like my bread and butter as a, as a kid growing up. I always ask people today, like, do you remember the scene from The Simpsons? They're like, what childhood did you have? And I say, the best one. Every time heaven is depicted in The Simpsons, it always features God as this spiritual father figure with a big white beard sitting on a throne in the clouds. And here's the catch, far, far away from this world. In this worldview, here's what happens. One, heaven gets defined as the spiritual world where Christians escape to at the end of their life. And two, earth gets pictured as something to be abandoned. And this couldn't be further from what the Bible says. In the scriptures, God creates the spiritual, but he also creates the material. Heaven is good and earth is good. In fact, think about it. Every time God has done something special in the history of the world or in the story of the Bible, which, you know, the story of the Bible does unpack the history of the world in some ways, it's always got something to do with creation, with the material world. Think about it. Genesis 1, start of the Bible. What's God do? Heavens and earth, brings them into being, takes the chaos and brings order out of it, a space where he can dwell, where humans can flourish around him. Genesis 1. What does God do in the middle of the scriptures, the middle of the story, the very hinge of history? What does God do? He puts on flesh in Jesus Christ. It's the ultimate vindication of the material world. It's not to say that it's inherently good and there's no other qualifying statements we can make about it. It's just to say that it is good in God's eyes. Every time God's done something special, it's been with the material world. So here's the biblical story. You've got heaven. It's behind me here. This, this imagery is really helpful. In the beginning, the purple sort of circle, you've got heaven and earth together, married together. Heaven was made for earth in the same way that a husband was made for a wife, to go together in distinct but unified ways. In the beginning, heaven and earth started off together. Heaven, earth, humanity, and God were all together in the garden. Humanity's job was to steward the rule and reign of heaven and push the ethos of the garden, the beautiful shalom garden that God had made, out into the known world, following in the footsteps of their maker, in the creativity and love and shalom and flourishing that God modeled. But humanity sinned. They rejected their vocation. They turned their backs on the God that made them for themselves. And as Martin Luther said, that we turned in on ourselves. I don't know if you felt this in your life, but it's the, the, the story that the Bible paints. And the result was two things. One, that humans were exiled from God's presence. And two, that heaven and earth were torn apart. And that's the second scene. Torn apart. And so you've got good heaven and good earth. And the problem isn't that the earth is now bad and heaven's good. It's that both are good, but they've been torn apart. And that's a life-changing statement. In Jesus, here's the good news of the, of the Jesus story. In Jesus, the claim is that God has reconciled humanity to himself. That because of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension, the life that Jesus lived that I couldn't, the death that Jesus died that I deserve, because of all that Jesus has done, he's taken care of our sin problem, our shame problem, and we can be reconciled to God. That's the Jesus story. But that's not the end of the story. See, when you see these two circles in the middle, you've got the, the heaven, the red, and you've got the earth, the blue, and they come together in that purple little concentric crossover. That's the life of the Christian. 
that in the life of the Christian, heaven and earth have been brought back together. Why? Because God's spirit is poured out on all those who follow Jesus. And God now gives a foretaste in the present, in the church, of what he's going to do in the end, which is this final picture. Earth, heaven, in the biblical story, are going to come back together. That's the promise, that one day God will return to destroy sin, sickness, death, and decay. That's the promise. Christians will not just be resurrected in new material bodies that are glorified, a little bit different from the ones we currently have. Praise God for that. They'll be resurrected in a renewed earth. The marriage, again, of heaven and earth will be resurrected in a rewoven, a perfect, healed, and whole material world. No more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness. God himself will take care of the pain of the world, everything new. One person who got a glimpse of this was the Apostle John. He's writing towards the end of the first century, and he's writing to Christians who are going through immense suffering. And what does the Apostle John say is the ultimate end of the world to give Christians facing suffering hope? What does John say? Well, he doesn't say that God's going to abandon this world. He doesn't say that God's going to take Christians out of this world. Here's the vision that John gives Christians from the mouth, um, from the uh, perspective of Jesus himself. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. What a picture. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Amen. Did you see that? Those of us in the room, did you, did you get a glimpse here of the nature of this hope? Those online, did you get a glimpse here of the nature of this hope? The hope isn't that God is taking Christians away from this world. It's that God's bringing heaven down. It's not that God is going to abandon this world. It's that he's going to renew it. God is not going to destroy materiality. He's going to restore it. God is not planning for our escape. He's planning for our resurrection. Why? One writer put it like this. He said, because matter matters to God. Matter matters to God. This is the Christian hope. This world means something. It is not an accident. God does not regret it. In the same way that God mourned over the state of the world in the story of Noah, God mourns over the fact that this creation is subject to decay. There are dark powers and sin at play, and they frustrate creation such that when Paul writes in Romans 8, creation groans, longing for the redemption. But God doesn't regret this world. He made it good, and it's frustrated right now. What Jesus did in his first coming for Christians, he will do in his second coming for the whole of creation. Sin, shame, sickness, brokenness, decay, all gone. Now, if you've known real suffering, this is fire for your life. If you haven't known real suffering, this just sounds like a nice meditation. But there's a, there are those of you in the room right now who you've actually faced real suffering. Maybe the sickness of a loved one, maybe the presence of pain in your own life, maybe it's chronic disease. Whatever your story, whatever your background, 
This is hope for you. Why? Because it's not that you will have your body be done away with, it'll be eaten by worms and your soul will go off to some disembodied heaven. It's that all of us will experience renewed material existence, resurrection life in the age to come. This is fire for suffering. That's why John gave his listeners a picture of this beautiful, renewed world. But the question this raises is, why doesn't God do it now? Like, that's my question. Why doesn't God do it now? If this is the picture of where we're going and God has the power and the know-how to get us there, why not now? And the pain of this question is it forces us to reckon with the question of evil and where evil really resides. See, the Christian story doesn't just say that evil's this out there problem that God needs to do away with. The Christian story says evil is the in-here reality that God needs to heal, melt away, and forgive us for. The heart of the problem in this world, one writer said, is the problem of the human heart. And so if we ask God to quicken the day he returns to do away with evil, what does that mean for us? It means that we'd be on the pointy side of judgment. Because as the Bible says, all of us has gone our own way. All of us fall short of the calling and vocation that God has given us to represent him to the world, to steward creation, to live his ways in his presence. And this is why the story of Jesus is so beautiful. Because Jesus lived the life that we should have died, the death that we deserved. He showed us what it means to rule and steward creation in the presence of God and for the benefit of the world. The result was our salvation and two, our unity with him such that we could be part of his program of renewal, revolution, an agent of blessing in the world. This is why the good news of Jesus is so good. So the question is not why doesn't God hasten the day. The thought is maybe he's being patient. Maybe someone in this room needs to know right now that today could be the day that you respond to the call of Jesus and start following him so that when he comes again to do away with all evil, you might find yourself as part of his people. So the question is, do you know Jesus? What is the hope? It's the hope that we've got a new heavens and new earth coming. Will you be there on that day? It's a serious and sobering, but it's so exciting. So what the hope is, and second, what does it change? There's a phrase Christians use when they want to talk about a Christian who's like being a bit of a spiritual space cadet. Uh, you'll see it on the slide behind me. People say things like, oh, that person, you know, when they've really disengaged from life, they say, oh, they're, they're so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. This is a pretty decent critique. Christians that don't engage in the world. Christians who maybe don't care about politics or the environment or the state of our family or friends, we're so disengaged. And the critique is that they're so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. It's a good critique, but it relies on a faulty definition of heaven. See, if heaven is just this promise of some eternal escape from this world, somewhere other than earth, then of course being heavenly minded means disengagement from this world, right? If heaven is about where we're going and it's not here, then we should just disengage. To be heavenly minded is to be a disengaged person in this world. But if you see that at the end of history, there is a renewed heaven and earth here in this world, then what you do right now to make this world more like that world is a faithful anticipation of that world. What began as a garden in Genesis 1, God is turning into a city in Revelation 21. And the story of the universe is of God creating heavens and earth, marrying them together back again in the life of the Christian who follows Jesus and promising that one day he's going to bring all things together 
in him. And here's the cool thing. He's partnering with humans to get him there. More importantly, our work and everything we do, regardless of what vocation we find ourselves in, it is part and it is made sense of because of the vision we have of this world being renewed. It anticipates that day. It participates. If it's done in Christ and by the Holy Spirit, it participates in the world that God is making. Now, before I apply this more specifically to our lives here, let me just preempt a bit of an objection that might come. See, what I'm really talking about is building God's kingdom. The kingdom is coming. Jesus prayed for it, and he embodied what it looked like to inhabit the kingdom of God on earth. And the kingdom of God is coming, and this world will be renewed. And what I'm basically saying is God is actually asking us to help him build for the kingdom. But the objection would be, now, Alex, doesn't that sound a bit triumphalistic? Like, do you really think that, you know, it's in our pay grade to be able to be part of God's kingdom building? And I'd actually want to say yes, but there's two extremes we want to avoid when we make that statement. One thing we want to avoid is what I like to call naive optimism. That's on one end of the spectrum. The other thing we want to avoid is despairing cynicism and pessimism. Um, naive optimism is the error that we, we commit whenever we think that we should build our own earthly kingdom at the expense of God's vision. Now, this is actually, you know, you hear people say, I want to build my kingdom on earth. You think of people who are trying to build their own empires in this world because they really believe that there's no life after death, that this world means nothing, and their best chance of hope and security is some kind of legacy they can build in this world. And what we'd call that is our own empire building. And it's naively optimistic because it's the story of the secular myth of progress. The story goes like this. This world is all we have, and so we better make a good jump at it. And we, right now as a culture, this is the story that we tell ourselves, right now as a culture, are making leaps and bounds towards advancement and progress and health, wealth and happiness. To give us evidence to support this story that we tell ourselves, we say things like this, we've got better medical treatment, we've got good entertainment, we've got good welfare and um, uh, access to money, we've got better education, we've got great coffee. And the world that we want to create, we are using technology to help us get there. And we start saying things like, yeah, we've really progressed as a society. Go us. This is awesome. We're building our own kingdom. This is amazing. And that's, very, that's naively optimistic. One, because the secular story of progress is just a myth. Yeah. It's a myth because it's a myth to think that pro- progress in one area of life equals progress in all areas of life. But we just know that not to be true. Think about it right now. In 2007, the iPhone was released. A few years later, Instagram and social media took off, and we thought that social media was going to be this great advance forward in, in connecting people and making access to information more easier. And, but what's social media done? Social media is good in some ways, but what's it done? It's polarized people. It's made people feel lonely. It's isolated them in their own political silos. And so what we thought would progress us in one way has actually, has actually hurt humanity in other ways. And that's why the myth of progress is a myth. We, we might advance technologically, but there's also larger questions that remain unanswered. This is naive optimism. Why? Because it overinflates our assessment of the good that humans can do. Humans are broken. We are not kingdom builders on this earth. We do not build our own kingdoms. We've already talked about the second era. The second era is born out of Plato's worldview. Uh, in his worldview, the material world is so bad that it needs abandoning. 
And if we're going to abandon this world, then it makes no sense for us to try and work for its betterment. Work, in Plato's worldview, and in, in this pessimistic understanding, um, is, is meaningless. It's pessimistic because it undermines the role we would have in partnering with God to see his kingdom come. So these are the two errors. One, to see ourselves as solely responsible for heaven on earth without acknowledging God, and to see ourselves as not responsible at all in God's mission. One is to overinflate the actions we have in the work that we do. One is to underinflate the actions we have in God bringing his kingdom to this earth. And the Christian hope tells us that God has a part to play in establishing his kingdom, and we have a part to play in establishing his kingdom. So how do we think about our work with this larger picture. And here's what I want to encourage you. You should see your work as a signpost to the world that God is bringing. It's going to be good. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be material in some kind of glorified way. The way you do work now should point to that. We anticipate. We partially enact now what God will do fully then. Restoring. Redeeming, renewing, being agents of blessing in the vocations that we find ourselves in. So back to work. How does the vision of the new heavens and new earth inform our work? Two things, real quick. One, it explains why good work is a good thing. I don't know if you know that. Good work is a good thing. It's not something we tack onto the Christian story. It's actually inherently part of it. Good work is a good thing. See, if God's kingdom is a renewed material world, then that explains why we all intuitively, from some deep part of us, want to make the world a better place. Martin Luther, um, the German reformer, he famously, I actually don't know if it was that famous, but it's famous to me. He said that if God's kingdom is coming tomorrow, we should plant trees today. Now, I don't think he was an environmentalist. I think he just got it. This idea that what I do matters. It's not going to be done away with. It's not going to not echo into eternity. It's actually going somewhere. It really, really matters. Good work is a good thing. Let me quote one of my favorite writers on this, N.T. Wright, in his book Surprised by Hope. He said, you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that is shortly about to be thrown into the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that is about to be dug up. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself. You are accomplishing something that will, in the end, in due course, be part of God's new world. So let's get practical. Maybe you're a doctor. Here's what the hope of heaven gives you the imperative for now. Meet, treat, and love your patients well. Why? It matters. The material world's going to be renewed. Sure, it's going, to, it's going to change in a way we don't fully understand, but it's going to be renewed. So meet, treat, and love your patients as best as you can to the glory of God. Maybe you're a musician, or you're a videographer, or you do work in the arts. Enjoy creating. God delights in your creativity. He longs for it. He's excited about it. And it's not going to mean nothing in eternity. We'll celebrate it. Maybe you're a firefighter. Here's the imperative of the Christian story. You may not know this, but the this imperative of the Christian story and the hope, if you're a firefighter, is this. 
preserve the building. Enjoy what you do in preserving buildings, in, in fighting off fires. Maybe you're a student. Here's the encouragement. Write good essays. I like the quote from Dorothy Sayers before, you know. If the first task of a Christian carpenter is not to get drunk on weekends as if our sole goal is to escape sin, it's important as it is. The sole goal of a Christian carpenter is to make good tables. Maybe you're a mother or a full-time. Here's the encouragement. You are not in a holding pattern waiting for your kids to be able to take care of themselves or be able to stay at home so you can get some time with your partner on the weekend while, you know, that's not your job. You are discipling. You are teaching them the scriptures. You are helping them grow in word and deed what it means to live out a gospel life, living the kind of life Jesus showed us to live with, pointing to the death and the resurrection that he did on our behalf. Maybe you're a politician. Bring order out of chaos. Enjoy doing it. And where you can, in a humble way, tilt this world towards justice if you've got the opportunity. It's where we're going. Somehow, in some way, the good of what you do right now will echo into eternity. It's the ultimate vindication of all that we do. It means the question that Camus asks in his book, The Stranger, Why Does What I Do Matter?, is answered in the Christian hope. Do you know why what you do matters? The Christian hope explains why good work is Good. Number two, it creates opportunities for us to redeem whatever work we do. As I unpack this point, I actually would love to invite the band to come up. It, redeem, it gives us opportunities to redeem whatever work that we do. See, here's the imperative of the Christian hope. The imperative is that whatever is aimed towards a renewed city with God at the centre and peace for all creation, do that. Whatever is aimed towards a renewed city with God at the centre and peace for all creation, do that. Which means, and I love saying this, that the Christian has a unique opportunity in this life. The Christian is uniquely gifted with the opportunity to have a job description, regardless of whether they're ever employed. Why? Because each of us have a calling that exists outside our, our employment to inhabit in time a witness to the coming kingdom of God. And what does that look like? It looks like renewal. It looks like blessing. It looks like restoration. It looks like justice. It looks like mercy. All of us have a mandate from heaven to be an agent of redemption and salt and light, regardless of the workplace or lack of workplace that we find ourselves in. So let's get really practical here. Maybe you're in a very mundane job and you loathe Mondays. It's hard. Maybe you work for a boss that you find really frustrating. Maybe you work with a colleague who just won't be quiet so you can get the work done that you need to. Maybe it's just very mundane, the kind of work that you do. Maybe you're filling out data, you know, data platforms or whatever the story. Here's the good news. Two things. One, what you do matters, even if it doesn't feel like it. But two, there's an opportunity for you to be a different kind of person in that role. Living a different kind of way, pointing to a different kind of kingdom. What does that mean? Well, maybe it means that you know, there's always an empty bottle of milk in the fridge at your workplace. Why aren't you the person who buys new milk without telling anyone? Or maybe the bin's always full and it's always overflowing and you're like, man, I wish someone would take care of this. Why not you? That's an opportunity. You can be an agent of redemption. The question is, well, why is that valuable? Here's why. Because you're living such a life that raises questions to which the Lordship of Jesus is the answer. We preach a life-changing gospel. We need to live lives that are changed. This is your job description, regardless of the employment that you have. Maybe you're in a mundane job. Here's how this affects you. Maybe you're not employed at all. Maybe you're a mother or a father. Maybe you're retired. And you're asking the question, how does what I do with my every day matter? And here's the good news. 
you can be an agent of renewal in the vocation that you find yourself in. Maybe your kids need blessing and they need care and they need love. Maybe the partner that you live with, they need your attention, your affection. It matters. It's part of God's witness to the world and his renewal through the church of what he's going to do in the end. So enjoy it. Don't think of yourself as being anything less because the world tells you you need to have a job and a nine to five to feel valuable. This is God's value to you. Participate well. Maybe you're in a job that you love. Here's the challenge. If you see yourself as valuable just because of the job that you're doing, because you love it, you might forego being the kind of agent of renewal that God asks you to be. Maybe you're a CEO and you feel the pressure of the bottom line. Here's here's the encouragement of the Christian hope. That doesn't need to be the primary narrative that you live by. It's important. You should steward finance as well. However, you have a calling that exists above and outside of the work you do, which should mean that you should change the way you inhabit the work that you do. Point to the king who saved you and who is coming again. I've always found Jesus' prayer that he taught the disciples fascinating, the Lord's prayer. Jesus asked God, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And the cool thing about the life of Jesus is that he embodied God's answer to that prayer. Think about it. Jesus was God in flesh. He announced and inaugurated the kingdom of God. He healed the sick. He spent time with sinners. He loved the unlovable. He fed the poor. He challenged the hypocrites. He denied himself and he gave his life for us. And our task is to partner with God to build the kingdom. Not because we can do it by ourselves, but especially not because we have no part to play. Because we follow in the footsteps of our King, motivated and animated by the Holy Spirit to play our part as we anticipate the future that God will bring. This is how God redeems the spheres of which we're a part. Now, some of you might say, Alex, this just sounds too hard to believe. How could it be possible that this world's going to be renewed? It's going to be glorious and beautiful. It's going to be material, but also spiritual. I just can't get my head around it. It's fun, hard to believe. And I just want to say something real, real softly. It's one thing to not be able to comprehend something and another thing to, be, to not be able to believe something. And I find myself believing this at a very deep level, not because I comprehend it. And I'd encourage you, if your response to this beautiful vision is, I, I, I find it hard to believe, I would just lean in real gently and say, actually, I just think we just find it hard to comprehend. But it's easy to believe. It's actually what we all want. We all want our work to matter. We all want to know that we're going somewhere. That we, we all want to know that the part we play now will echo, not just with the legacy that we leave our family, that's a good thing too, but into eternity, transcendently, living on and on. We all want to know that. It's easy to believe it's hard to comprehend. I can't comprehend how planes get off the ground. Blows my mind every time. I get nervous when I fly. Can't comprehend it, but I believe it. Why? I've got evidence that it works. Likewise, I can't comprehend how God took the decaying body of Jesus in the grave, resurrected him to new life. I can't comprehend it because when Jesus came out of the grave, he came out a little bit the same as he was. He still had scars. He still ate food, but then he walked through walls and I just don't get that. I can't comprehend it, but I can believe it. Why? Because there's evidence for it. And likewise, the evidence that points to the hope that we have in Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus and the way that this story resonates with each of our hearts right now. You might not be able to comprehend this, but you can believe it. 
and you can stake your life on it. I have, and it's never disappointed. The Christian story, sometimes it doesn't explain the hope that we have, but it sure as well promises it. And so you can have every assurance right now that if you're in Jesus Christ, you know him and love him and worship him and serve him and follow him, you'll be found on that day in a resurrected world where everything you've done in this light will have made sense. And that can start now. You might not be a Christian in the room and this might have been the first time you've heard a message like this that actually really attracts you to Jesus. I'd love you to consider starting to follow Jesus today. You might be a, not be a Christian in the room and you're not at that stage. And, and here's what I want to encourage you around. This should at least make you want Christianity to be true. It should at least make you curious. Why? Meaning. Purpose. Destiny. All the things that make for a meaningful life. Packaged in the Christian hope. And so I want to encourage you to check it out. Maybe you want to attend Alpha. Chat with one of our hosts after the service. They'll instruct you and inform you as to how you can participate in Alpha. But for all of us in the room, we need, a, we need this hope to change our work. We need this hope to inform why our work is good, but also temper us from placing our identity in it. We need this hope to inspire us for Mondays again, such that we'd enter our workplace as an agent both of excellence, but also of renewal and redemption and blessing. It'll mean that some of us need to make hard decisions, maybe not to stay up late at night to work on that presentation that we know actually will be to no avail and to make the call to the colleague that we saw at work that day who we know is struggling. But it might work the opposite way for others of us who find ourselves being a bit more lazy with our work. We need this hope to change our work. And so I want to pray for us. What the hope is and what the hope changes. Short answer, everything. It changes everything. And so why don't you stand? And I pray that God would catch our imaginations, light our hearts, not just with an image of this hope, but how we might participate in it from now. And so let me pray. Lord God, you are King and Saviour. Jesus, thank you that because of what you've done, I can be reconciled to you and now be an agent of your redemption in the world. Thank you that on that day, because of Jesus, if I respond, I might be found in him and with you, resurrected and renewed. Lord, we give you our hearts this morning. We give you our minds. We give you our imaginations. We give you our hands. And we ask the, the thing that Jesus asked, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done in us and through us for our joy, your glory, and for the sake of the world? Use us as your agents, Father, building for your kingdom in your presence. And Lord, would people ask us questions to which you are the answer? And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.